five years ago it would have cost 100 uh, Bitcoin to buy a house, and now it costs 10 Bitcoin to buy a house. Um, and that'll continue to fall as all prices relative to Bitcoin will fall forever. But most people will measure those prices through whatever currency is being manipulated. And they will, they'll continue to be confused about what's, what's happening. Essentially, Bitcoin is repricing that entire debt stack. The fee market in Bitcoin is extremely robust. There's a lot of demand for this very scarce digital real estate of Bitcoin block space. And there's going to be, and the, we can't like morally judge the use. It's like sort of starting to judge someone's energy usage. There's going to be all kinds of random people that use Bitcoin block space for all God knows what kind of things. I don't think we can like morally or ethically judge it. It's just the outcome of the free market. Like, it'll, and it won't be linear, but like it's going to go up over time. There's going to be more and more people interested in Bitcoin block space because it's very scarce and it's limited by time, which is the most precious resource of all. What's up, Sats fans? Welcome to Swan Signal. I'm your host, Sam Callahan, lead analyst at Swan Bitcoin. And we have another great episode for you guys today. If you care about your financial future, you need to check out a couple of our offerings, including Swan IRA and Swan Private. Swan Private is our white glove concierge service where you get a trusted partner on your Bitcoin journey. We offer all kinds of education and research projects as well as exclusive events to our Swan Private customers. Check it out today at swan.com slash private. Also, Swan IRA. Swan IRA is the best way to gain exposure to real Bitcoin in a tax advantage account like a traditional IRA, a Roth IRA, or rolling over your 401k. So if that interests you, check it out at swan.com slash IRA today. We've got two great writers, two great thinkers with us, um, two people that have already been on the show before coming on back. So we got Jeff Booth, who is the GP at Ego Death Capital, as well as the author of The Price of Tomorrow. And we have Alex Gladstein, who's the Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation, as well as the author of Check Your Financial Privilege and his new book, Hidden Repression, How the IMF and World Bank Sell Exploitation as Development. And we'll definitely get into that today. But welcome, gentlemen. How are you guys? Really great. Thanks. Great. Looking forward to our chat today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, both great. Awesome. Um, So, Alex, I definitely want to start off with you guys, uh, with your book, basically, because uh, it's something that I'm passionate about. And I think it's... I read... Most of it, I uh, just got it a couple of days ago, mm-hmm. and Jeff actually wrote the foreword to it. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to get into hidden repression, um, why you wrote it, what it is, and what's the main topics and takeaways from it. Sure. Well, it was a process of me doing reporting around the world about Bitcoin adoption. And over the last three, four years, I talked to a lot of people who adopted Bitcoin in different corners of the world. And they would tell me about why they adopted Bitcoin, and then they would tell me about why they needed to or had to, and it's because their local financial system was broken. And it was kind of like um, doing some sort of archaeological dig where you were uncovering, for example, maybe like a dinosaur or or like a like a buried sculpture or something and you you uh uncovered this little piece uh, maybe like a tooth perhaps and you realized it was going to be part of something bigger but you didn't really quite know what you were digging up and you just had to sit there and continue to unearth um unearth the thing and that was really what my process has been like has been kind of unearthing a lot of different truths that start to connect into a a big narrative and and that's what i've 
been working on, like through all my different projects, I would say from a research and reporting point of view over the last three, four years is um, <clears throat> just kind of looking at the international monetary system and looking at different aspects of it uh, that, that we in the West uh, created to boost it or, or sustain it. Uh, one of them was, of course, the petrodollar that I looked at. One of them was the kind of way that we, we created like a debt empire, and, and that was so unprecedented and so interesting. Um, and, and then, you know, one of the other things I wanted to look at was the Bretton Woods system, obviously, and the two big pillars of that, uh, two of the biggest pillars of that system that have defined dollar hegemony, the dollar system, the world we live in, have been the World Bank and IMF. And I just didn't think there was very much out there on the topic. It's really weird for two of the most important institutions in the world, the largest development bank and the world's lender of last resort. There's no like when genius failed type pop, like, like you know, like, you know, yeah. or um, what's it called? Uh, Lords of finance. You know, th there's, there's a lot of cool stuff written about the great depression, the Asian financial crisis, even. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of awesome kind of pop economics uh, approachable but good topics uh, that are that are covered in mainstream. Like when you go into a bookstore, you go to the economic section. There's a lot of great stuff in there, but there's like nothing on the IMF and World Bank. And I just no. I got really curious about that, and I was like, hmm, why is that the case? And I started digging in. I read like a million JSTOR articles, you know, from back in the day about you know whatever the IMF program in T Tanzania in the 80s or whatever, like. You know, that Sci-Hub thing is incredible. There's this communist woman out of Kazakhstan that you can pay in Bitcoin, and she, she keeps a, a copy of every single, like, uh, art, scientific or academic article on the Internet. It's incredible. And, you you know, I would encourage people to donate to that service because it, it really helps those of us who don't have, like, uh, subscriptions to every single academic uh, treasury, we'll say. Um, yeah. But in any event, just being able to dig into that, like, to go really and dig into those papers um, – from back then 60s 70s 80s 90s was super useful and and i just started to sketch out this big big picture dynamic that the dollar financial system uh has as part of it or you know like has as a, a you know a central part of it uh essentially a, a an exploitation system or it's like a drain where we basically take uh resources and labor from the periphery of the world, then we pull it into the core. What I mean by that is uh, you have like Europe and the United States and some of the rich countries that we're allied with. We're like about a billion people and we, we're often called the global north or whatever, the first world. Um, most of the world's people and most of the world's resources are located in what are, what's known as the de developing world or the, the global south. Um, you're talking about almost all the world's resources and, and you know, almost all the world's actual humans in terms of labor hours are located over there. So what I, what I started to realize is that the, the dollar system, the IMF, the world bank, even the petrodollar, a lot of, a lot of the building blocks of the international financial system post 71, what they really do is they help us extract cheap resources and labor from over there and then input that into our system and that helps us achieve like a higher standard of living here, less inflation, less economic crises. Like we still have them, of course, but it, it, I'll leave this and then I'll, I'll turn it to Jeff. But like just an example, just to give you some context, 
half of all the resources we consume in the West come from these like global South countries. Half. We're talking about oil, wow. precious metals, timber, concrete ingredients, etc. Steel making ingredients. And then about a third of the labor of, of what we rely on comes from there as well. So, so stop to think about, okay, so what happens if we don't have this drain? Okay, so what, what would happen to our economic system if one day we woke up and we had half of the resources that we need for our lives? And if, if, if our labor was much more expensive um, because we didn't have that one third over there, whether it be in China or wherever, well, guess what? you'd have really fucking high inflation here. <laughs> like Things would be really expensive. So this is the thing that I've started to just uncover and realize is that like our system is subsidized by these um, mechanics. And the IMF and World Bank are two of the biggest pieces of that. But it's this massive machine that's got a lot of moving parts. And I, 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 I tapped Jeff to try and write the intro to this because uh, he just ha- helped me think about it, I think, quite a bit. So very, very, very honored to have you in there in the book, Jeff, and uh, happy to talk about it with you today. Yeah. Um, honored to be a part of it. Um, uh, you'll find this, uh, you'll find this amusing or, or interest. My daughter who is 18 years old, mm-hmm. who knows everything about what I talk about all the time is about three quarters away through your book. And mm-hmm. for her, um, it, it's, it, 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 it's, it's uncovering things yeah. that she didn't know. Yeah. And, uh, and and I think it's so it's moving moving hers and and when it, when I look at this I think we just came at this from different different places right the this and that's why Bitcoin is almost like a prism you see th- see through it from your vantage point rather mm-hmm. than what it really looks like because it's outside the system but I I my view of the whole thing is it had to look like that because we have essentially a system that robs the productivity gains that are supposed to flow to society through the in the form of lower prices mm-hmm. and has to transfer those to certain people in the u.s we see the divide being who it who it steals from in the u.s and you have a whole bunch of people within the u.s saying those rich are getting richer and richer and richer and the whole political theater on top of that that gets make, makes that happen just by very function of this theft in the base layer, but but they most people in the U.S. don't zoom out to see the implications. They're part of a broader system that steals from everybody else. And I had this very conversation uh, with. I'm going to not say who. I'm going to say a close person <laughs> to, and this person and, and and this person was saying uh, someone I know very well. Let's say, and he was he was arguing about this, mm-hmm. and 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 saying how bad it is here in Canada. What this looks like. I can't believe. And yelling. And I said, Do you realize that if you're part of the if if you're talking about the 0.1%, then you're part of the 3% that steals from everybody else in the world. Is that okay? And only and only when I said that, and now uh, could could he see that, wait, <laughs> why am I, <laughs> I? I'm mad at the people above me, but I'm not mad at the people below me. And when you have a system that is essentially the base, uh, is, uh, the, uh, an entire system, where, where the debt is already insolvent, globally, um, and would become 
immediately insolvent if you allowed deflation or allowed productivity to flow to society. So we live in a system that we're, where we're all voting to have more and more, infl- more, more theft and money. What would that look like all over the world? So we just came, I, I think what we did is we came through it, it came to that in two different ways, but you exposed what that entire, entire system looks like for other people in the world, uh, in in the world, and what I worry about, Alex, uh, in some of those regions, what I worry about most, and you know, we've spent lots of time on this in in Oslo and Lofoten and others. Um, in some of the regions that people most need this, they rely on the system more. They lean into the system more more, and they don't see it. So that, that's that's what I would say. I worry about. <coughs> So we have, we have what you talk about, which is um, protecting the core at the expense of the periphery, mm-hmm. and that's kind of if we think about the core as G seven, or basically the money printers. And let's take a step back and just talk about the IMF, World Bank. Yeah, they are kind of U.S. led organizations or G seven led organizations. Um, but Alex, I think it would be helpful for the listeners. Um, if you could just walk through like maybe an example or it could just be a hypothetical of how they go into a country um, and how they exactly exploit resources from them. Um, maybe talk about some of their policy choices, the structural adjustments attached to mm-hmm. these loans and how they weaponize debt um, mm-hmm. to basically get what they want out of these developing nations. I think it would be helpful just to go through an example for people to understand yeah. what's going on here. Yeah, and to be clear, I, I'm not convinced that they were set up uh, maliciously in the beginning. Uh, it's not clear that that's the case. They were set up to do two things. The IMF was set up to be the lender of last resort for the world during a time that had just seen a, a world war, a, a horrific world war, where you know countries did need to be, uh, let's say, you know, rebuilt. Uh, and the World Bank was meant to be an actor that could lend where private capital just didn't have the, the appetite in a world that needed a lot of infrastructure rebuilding. Um, so at the beginning, it, it was fair to think that these were honest actors that made sense, that that honestly were on a, almost, a, at that time, it was a commodity standard in a way, right? Um, the In fact, when you joined the IMF back then, you had to pay your entry fee most, you know, in a large part in gold, actually. The IMF, people don't know this, but the IMF still today, I think, is the third largest holder of gold in the world. They kept all that gold <laughs> that they got for super cheap, basically. Um, but basically, like, you you paid an entry fee in the form of gold and some, like, dollars. But you couldn't, like, print your own currency to go to the IMF. Like, they, they needed to get a pound of flesh from you to go in. Uh, like something real, something like gold or, or dollars being more more real than what you printed, let's say, if you were a country in sub-Saharan Africa or something. So, um, you know, you, you, you got your way in. Um, and then at the beginning, it, it was supposed to be this like pool of capital that countries could draw from if they had a crisis. I mean, maybe it was a tsunami or a famine or, I mean, there's a lot of like legitimate reasons, again, to maybe think that world nations could maybe together capital to to have a, an emergency fund i mean it, it doesn't necessarily you know imply ma- maliciousness here do you know what i mean yeah and the world bank same thing like once you got into the imf then you could access the world bank and again maybe it made maybe it makes sense to borrow in some capacity for some projects i mean i'm not going to sit here and say that that that's 
off the table. I, I think that that could make sense in a lot of ways. The problem is kind of what happened to them later. Like, like they, they really, a lot of people argued that they should have been retired in the 1960s once the industrial world like kind of regained its, its infrastructure and, and economic power. But they didn't. They Instead, they shifted their attention to the what we call the developing world or the third world. Um, and, and they were kind of repurposed. And again, I don't know if it was like one board meeting where people figured this out. I think it's kind of a maybe path dependent, maybe subconscious. It's not clear. But, but what's very clear is the outcome of the system. And what the outcome of, of what the IMF and World Bank became was a replication of the colonial drain that was achieved by imperialism. So basically, back in the day, imperialists would uh, venture abroad to steal uh, uh, resources and also uh, repress wages to get cheap things from places like India, and then they would use that to enrich themselves at home. This was, I mean, you know, this is why people did colonialism. Like, this idea that colonialism, like, didn't profit people or that the British Empire, like, succeeded... In spite of this, in spite of colonialism, is crazy talk. Like, it was extremely lucrative to be a colonialist. Like, extremely so. Like, you didn't have to abide by any kind of labor standards or environmental standards of any kind. You could just go in, pillage, leave. So that took place and changed the world and excavated the world for a long time. And then in the in the 20th century, you started to have resistance movements and you started to have uh, decolonialization, right? Um, and that, that had a huge impact on the West. Like, basically, if you look at this, yes, I understand that the Great Depression related a lot to changes in monetary policy. Um, but one of the things it also related to was the British Empire, the core of the Western economic world at the time, um, was, was suffering from a, a slowdown in the amount of resources it could steal from its empire. Like, its empire was starting to fade or some of its subjects were starting to get sovereignty that only increased as you got further into the 20th century and one of the especially important things about resource extraction has been energy like basically like the west really advanced because of access to fossil fuels uh, you know if you look at every barrel of oil like a certain number of workers it's like a incredible subsidy for what we can achieve and and our control over that started to uh, get cut off as opec became like an independent thing and then in the 70s, you saw this really, really clearly happen, like OPEC became independent, and they decided to make oil a lot more expensive. Like that wouldn't have obviously happened had we retained colonial control over resource production. So this this big shift in the world started to happen, and it led to uh, economic crises in the West. So we lost a lot of what we once had in terms of straightforward imperialism. And it started to get replaced, again, not necessarily a conspiracy or like a, a sit-down meeting, but but like the, the, the outcome of the IMF and World Bank policy started to replace like old-school imperialism, meaning like they would give the West access to, to markets where they could have cheaper than market rate goods and labor. Um, and this was achieved through uh, basically just resource harvesting and wage deflation, right? And, and that's what happens when like the IMF makes a loan to a country in the global south. So for example, we could look at uh, Egypt as like a good example here. Uh, as a, or, you know, it's a big, big, big global south country, right? So currently, um, Egypt is receiving a, a big loan from the IMF. It's a bailout. It's a it's a structural adjustment loan. So I'll describe that in a second. But just remember that like there's been like hundreds and hundreds of these loans made, uh, you know, 
hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars given out over the last five or so decades all across the global south, uh, Argentina, Turkey, Indonesia, you know, usually the bigger, meatier, more industrial global south countries were the big sort of target here, not necessarily like some little tiny country, but like big, big, big countries that had a lot of resources were like the main targets, like again, Indonesia, Pakistan, um, Brazil, Argentina, Nigeria, etc. So you look at a country like Egypt. So they're ruled by a dictator. Uh, the IMF really prefers dictators, and this is why I started getting interested in the first place as a human rights activist. I was like, why are they bailing out all these dictators? You start to realize that, like, if you can just work with a client who's a dictator, you don't need to deal with, like, a Supreme Court and property rights and protests and, no, like, critical articles in the media. Forget about it. Like, your dictator can just handle all that for you, <laughs> and you can just have this very straightforward relationship where you give this loan and in exchange the dictator does certain things that are that are good for you right and what do you want uh you want what's 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 called austerity like you again you want like cheaper wages in egypt and and you want cheaper goods for export so what what they do is they engineer their society to to do those things and that requires things like uh devaluation of currency kind of creating a recession essentially like they they basically restrict the banking environment they raise interest rates um they get rid of like subsidies on things like fuel uh and and food um basically like they they shrink the body politic uh of a country in order to uh move uh resource investment from um local uh nourishment and advancement to uh, paying interest and exporting stuff. Um, and it, it all aligns with the, the goals of the dictators, actually. The incentives are all like uh, aligned in the system because all these borrowers, these dictators, they have dollar-denominated debt that they've accumulated over the 50, 60 years. So they, they can't just like print their own currency to pay this off. It's very important. Like if you're Egypt, you can't just like buy a lot of dollars. You can't just like buy $20 billion of dollars so so easily um a it's not like the like the like uh trading pairs are often just not there for some of these countries but b it like totally wrecks the value of your currency if you just think about it if you just go out and buy a bunch of uh dollars with pounds like you're you get crushed you so this is, this is yep. yeah so they don't necessarily do that what they prefer to do is they prefer to to export to earn dollars so that they can pay off their debt and then buy things like oil again because not like if you're egypt you can't necessarily print money to buy oil or fertilizer or tractors or a new dam it's got to usually be done in dollars so again they can't necessarily print the money to do that so they have to shape their economy so that they can earn uh so that they can earn dollars so they they sell stuff to the west now what does the west want the west doesn't want the same thing that egypt needs to nourish its people and to become an industrial power the west wants stuff like and i'm generalizing here but like coffee tea palm oil rubber uh oil oil uh minerals uh you know, usually non-edible exports, <laughs> shrimp in, in some cases. You know, sometimes it is edible, but it's meant for someone else. Like, it's not like the shrimp farmers in Bangladesh or, or Peru are, are are eating what they're making. No, no, no. The shrimp is meant for someone else. And so, why is, sorry, but ask, yeah, why, yeah. why is the non-edible portion important? Well, I mean, like, it's just. It, it creates it, dependence, it, right? Well, it, it there's 
several aspects to it, but you're correct. The main thing there is that it reinforces the incentives of the system, which are to make the out the periphery dependent on the West for for food. Right. Uh, right. This has been a longstanding goal of U.S. foreign policy for a long time: is to be food sovereign uh, and energy sovereign. So. The food sovereignty part's been really big. Like, you know, Africa imports eighty five percent of its food, which is which is kind of crazy. Um, but anyway, the point is that like uh, these countries will undergo these structural adjustment policies. These dictators will get refilled. Um, the loan that was potentially in question before that they had borrowed earlier that they were maybe not going to be able to pay back anymore is no longer in danger of going to zero on some Western creditor's balance sheet. Like they're gonna they're gonna get a new loan to pay that back. Like if you look at any of these like giant loans that go out, like when Argentina got bailed out with the biggest ever IMF loan, you have to look. It was important. It's important to see that it's 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 big enough to pay for all the other debt they'd already achieved plus a lot more debt. So it like sends them even deeper into the debt trap. So this activity has been going on for decades, where you have all of these unaccountable leaders borrowing to pay for things like interest dollar-denominated uh, export, uh, like like things they can only get with dollars, like basically things they really, really need, like usually energy, uh, weapons, uh, and then paying back debt is all dollar stuff. Um, and then the, the kind of the productive base of the country shrivels, or at least it doesn't advance at the rate it could, I guess is the point. A lot of people will point to like India and say, well, these countries are Look, they're growing. They're totally fine. Yeah, they're growing, but they're growing at a rate that would be less than 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 if 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 this didn't this this dynamic didn't exist. So you have this enormous amount of debt that was pumped into the world uh, back starting in the seventies. It's and it's grown exponentially. It's gone from you know Bangladesh had a hundred million dollars of foreign debt. Now it has a hundred billion. I mean that's impossible. They'll never pay that back. It's the system's not designed for them to pay it back. The system's designed for them to pay it back with new debt. So, I mean, that's kind of where we are. Uh, the system has, this is not a mistake, and it's not been like a waste. Like, the West has profited enormously from this, not just in dollars or, or money, but in control over resources um, geopolitically. So it's been really effective for the creditors of this system in a way that's impossible to, like, like, it's it's so hard to, like, even just, measure Fathom. how yeah. yeah how effective this has been but when you've like engineered the part of the world that has the most the most people and the most resources to be essentially like a farm for you to take stuff from that has very little local political resistance i mean that's an incalculable uh thing to achieve so china's seen this they're copying it they have their own version of it and i fully expect regional powers to try and do it themselves as well like i would expect brazil to eventually be able to do it to the other latin american countries etc so you know you have this model this fiat based model that's only really possible because the reserve currency can be minted into existence with paperwork and it's just going to keep going and going and going until we have a different paradigm where maybe we start to have a multipolar uh, reserve system and then maybe bitcoin starts to enter the picture and then maybe it becomes bitcoin dominant and, and then at that point the the incentives start to change and then maybe mm. maybe jeff can weigh in but that's uh i think that's where the, that's where we're heading is what i would call people have different words for it but like i've heard great simplification uh, maybe great unwinding but like you're gonna have that we have this enormous debt bubble that's in large part been created by the dynamics i've been describing it's indescribably large, it's so many trillions of dollars, and almost all of it was borrowed without consenting the people. And a lot of that is actually, 
to this point, it's been sustained, but it's going to actually go to zero. <laughs> like some of that, some of that debt's actually going to start to get devalued. Like, sure, the purchasing power of bonds is down what thirty percent in the last year. We're gonna, we're talking about something a lot more severe than that for a lot of this debt. So you're talking an unwinding of this bubble finally, and maybe a new way out. I mean, we'll see. I, I, all we can do today is speculate on the big picture of what nations are doing. We do know is that Bitcoin is an individual escape for people and that's been huge yeah um but it's it's i think it's it's an important thing to to discuss for sure yeah we have we have this imf put as you've described it yeah keeping the sovereign debt bubble alive it's the biggest bubble that's out there and you know jeff i think of your uh you know your work talking about how they just have to keep this system alive they can't allow deflation to happen that debt is already insolvent so I have to ask you, Jeff, like, how can Bitcoin help exactly in this uh, scenario? I know uh, you've thought about this before, but in the framework of thinking about the IMF and these countries and all this debt that's never going to get paid back, how can Bitcoin help exactly? So <clears throat> let me start with just kind of reinforcing what uh, Alex just uh, said. Okay. So when when people look at uh, to run their EVs and electric electrification of this, they should look at the only way that that works is the cobalt miners in Africa getting paid a dollar a day. And so when they see that mine that looks exactly like that, when they hear somebody say, we need to make, we need to promote green energy, they need to look at that mine and they say, is this a fair way to, to run the world's labor? Is this, is this fair that we're able to extract this toll on other people? Because that's the, that's the cost. Well, it might be hidden from you, but that is the cost of the economic system that we live in. And it's not just cobalt, it's every single thing cause they, they, around the world because it doesn't work unless it looks like that. Now, now all, also, if you add that that system now actually removes the ability for the U.S. for kind of their military-industrial complex... Because what it means, just the economic value alone, it means you have to outsource everything. There is no way people will end, uh, bring stuff into the U.S. with with a dollar being way worth way more than it is elsewhere. And and what Alex just said. So there's, I actually think what's happening around at a higher level than than the monetary level that we hear about at the Fed, what we hear about in the politicians is what's really happening is the national security uh, complex the u.s realizes that they need to reshore labor and they need to and that means a lower u.s dollar and it's impossible to have a u.s lower u.s dollar with every other nation pegging to your u.s dollar essentially china's using that strategy to exploit the strategy and if the u.s allows them china will be dominant and then it'll be that then it'll look like uh, then it'll expand on the same essentially paradigm that we just had uh, that we had i i suspect that is nobody's going to let that happen um there is not going to be another reserve currency like the u.s ever um so what what's actually happening is and and this is why this is so hard to see is is just about everything we measure is inside the system and we have a new system, a parallel system being developed beside it. Do, just, just, to, just to pause you, Jeff, do you mean that like when China, for example, 
uh, earns dollar uh, dollars for all that stuff, it then just swaps that into, for example, like rare earths or you know energy <laughs> or assets. food, hard assets. Exactly. They're they're essentially using the political will of the U.S. to be able to print, print, print to be mm-hmm. able to peg to a cheaper dollar, keep their labor rate low while to attack and tra- driving these assets and then building Belt and Road in, in, in China. Doing because without the dollar consumers buying their stuff, they may not have the same market and they may not have the same ability to go get those rare earths or, or oil or whatever. Their, their debt, which there's never been a country created more debt to GDP faster than China. Yeah. You yeah. want to you want the biggest debt bomb in the world and ter- terrible demographics. Their debt collapses immediately right. without those consumers. Yeah. So so I I suspect at a bigger uh, play what's happening here is the 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 game between the Fed and everything else and the backdoor operations between the Fed and which banks they want to save is actually the national security complex saying how much pain can we inflict on on the US? <laughs> and st- keep independence of the Fed because the alternative is China wins. That's, <laughs> and, and so, well, and, 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 and so that's just the game within the game. What's, uh, what, what's happening if we go back to Bitcoin and why that's so important and why it would be hard to see from within the system is everybody's looking for You've probably heard me say this a million times, but which snowflake causes the avalanche, right? The yeah. um, and lots of snowflakes all over the place, and everybody's saying, "Oh no, this is it, this is it, this is it," and you cannot measure a um, a nonlinear system like that. This is, works more like chaos theory. And what what's happening is is Bitcoin is repricing that entire system, but from the outside in. So, and that, what that transition is going to look like is a slow, slow transition with lots of events inside. So, if you're pricing from the existing world, and let's say in in Argentina, there's only five percent of people on Bitcoin, ninety-five percent in inside a system that has a hundred and ten percent inflation rate. In other yeah. words, in a hundred and ten percent inflation rate is a deflation of their labor. It's wage deflation by that amount. So, so essentially, everybody there has gotten a massive pay decrease versus the world. They're getting squeezed. Squeezed. Yes, and, totally. And, and, and that means U.S. gets to extract more of their labor and exactly. Europe and everyone else. And 95% of them stay. Yeah. And to do it all over again. Yeah. Right? And then, and then they think in the short term, wow, okay, now investment and capital is moving in here mm-hmm. and I'm going to get my going to get rug pulled again and again and again that's so the rest of the entire economic system looks like that and they're going to get rug pulled again and again and again um, as 400 trillion dollars of global debt goes away yeah and whatever terms you want it could go away through uh, through collapse it could go away through hyperinflation it likely won't be hyperinflation in the US but it'll go away in a whole bunch of different ways as Bitcoin starts to move people over. Because in Bitcoin, in Bitcoin you could simplify this really easily. Um, and I said this on Peter McCormick's podcast, but it's, it's well known in economics. Prices fall to the marginal cost of production, no matter what. Over a long enough time horizon, 
prices fall to the marginal cost of production. It's why the error that you're breathing right now is free. It's why your calculator app is free. It's why this, this video that we're using right now is free. Because as more and more entrepreneurs try to create value on something like that, until, well, there's a penny left in profit, they will attack it. And then mm -hmm. it goes to free and the entrepreneurs go to the next thing. You can regulate an industry to slow that down, but it's still attacked from somewhere else in the world. And over time, prices fall to the marginal cost of production. I could just say, you could just say that period exclamation mark. So, mm -hmm. so, but the only thing that could measure that phenomenon is something that was outside the system of debt. So what, what's happening in Bitcoin is it's it, what you're experiencing Bitcoin. Why, why five years ago, it would have cost a hundred, uh, Bitcoin to buy a house. And now it costs 10 Bitcoin to buy a house. Um, and that'll continue to fall as all prices relative to Bitcoin will fall forever. But most people will measure those prices through whatever currency is being manipulated and they will, they'll continue to be confused about what's what's happening essentially bitcoin is repricing that entire debt stack mm. over time over time but it's going to take it's going to take a bunch of time and it's going to be messy along the way with various regions um trying to stop that trying to uh, uh trying to do whatever they can in their local currencies regulation removal of individual rights of freedoms to be able to to stop that but it, it's unstoppable because you have an open open network that's available for yeah i mean there's the there's are. currently like you know imf active in argentina and they're trying to condition yeah <laughs> some of the loans on on a on essentially a more restricted banking system that would make it harder for people to escape with cryptocurrency and and, and you have the leader kind of the person head in the polls is a bitcoin advocate I, yeah well right. you know eventually people are going to figure it out i mean i think that um it's one thing for El Salvador as a dollarized country for that leader, and I still think it was a great decision and a big, a big bold risk. But then again, I mean, it's not like he had monetary control to begin with. Um, seeing a country like Argentina do it would be very interesting. So, um, mm. so we'll see. But I think that the point is that what we know is that what Jeff's describing is like I don't, from like 1968 to 2008, like you had enormous wage deflation in a lot of places real real wage deflation it didn't it wasn't uh, a perfect line it was it was um it comes in spits and and, and spurts it, it comes in uh, eras right but there there were there there'll be a two decade era if you look at like the 70s and 80s where a lot of poorer countries where the average person the, the time it took them to earn a thousand calories of rice or beef or something would would double or go up 50 percent or so, something so but that's keep, what i mean by wage yeah, deflation you know yeah. keep keep on that though because people don't see it in their own country because they're yeah. measuring in that country but it's happening in the u.s too so so what what should happen even if you just go back to Keynes in 1923 mm -hmm. Keynes wrote economic possibilities of our grandchildren he said the global average work week in 2020 will be 10 hours instead the global average work week for the the people who sit on top of the system is zero. Right. Will they pray? Will they pray? <laughs> will they pray yeah, exactly. Will they prey on the seven and a half billion other people in uh, in the world who who work right. longer and longer hours? Right. So to Jeff's point, this would be especially apparent. And look, there's other stuff going on. Like the unions were shattered 
in a lot of countries by by government corporate corporate alliances i mean but in general like the amount of like rice or beef or whatever you could get for an hours of one hour of your time decreased in a lot of places uh and it's happening again now as a result or it's tied to the fed's decisions to to raise interest rates like you're seeing another kind of third world debt type crisis over the last year and a half you're seeing a lot of places like in Egypt, for example, the price of like the cost of bread is skyrocketing. So like the average person can only, can afford a lot less bread than they could before as a result of some of these trying to come into alignment with some of these policies. It's sort of like half kind of structural adjustment and half just general the rising cost of capital due to the U.S. government raising rates. But in general, I guess what we're describing here is is a like a 50 year increment where like people's like wages uh, we're deflating and then all of a sudden now that anyone has access to bitcoin like the next 50 years will be a different sort of paradigm where people can actually in an open way access something where they can put their wages in where their purchasing power is, is not just protected but actually amplifies um now yeah. the the big question is and you know to the to the topic of the day uh <laughs> is is um will people be able to afford to access bitcoin uh in which is (laughs) really which is a really important thing and i think that if you study bitcoin long enough you look at it as long as someone like jeff has you realize that it's like the on-chain activity is eventually going to be like a settlement network almost like a fed wire or like a central banking system where the average person buying coffee or paying a remittance is not going to use on-chain bitcoin in 50 years or whatever that's just not going to make any sense you're going to have to use layered money. You're going to have to take advantage of that and use whether it's a second layer, a side chain, a custodial solution, a federated solution, whatever. There, there'll be many options potentially. But I think what you're looking at now is probably going to subside, but it's a glimpse of a future where like the fee market in Bitcoin is extremely robust. There's a lot of demand for this very scarce digital real estate of Bitcoin block space. And there's going to be... and. We can't like morally judge the use. It's like sort of starting to judge someone's energy usage. There's going to be all kinds of random people that use Bitcoin block space for all God knows what kind of things. I don't think we can like morally or ethically judge it. It's just the outcome of the free market. Like, And it won't be linear, but like it's going to go up over time. There's going to be more and more people interested in Bitcoin block space because it's very scarce and it's limited by time, which is the most precious resource of all. So what's going to happen is like, the people that need to be onboarded who were like in the 1980s stuck in Peru with the local currency getting structurally adjusted and getting squeezed and literally going through what Americans fear today, which is this sort of apocalyptic end times thing. Well, guess what? People in Peru lived it in the 80s. Look, it sucked. Trust me. And, you know, people died and the life expectancy went down. But people survived and, you know, they got through it. Like, we'll get through it. Don't, we'll get through it. It's going to suck, but we'll get through it. But the thing is, now we have something, and so do people in Peru, that, that they have something, even if they don't know it yet, that's at least a personal escape. We don't know if it's like a nationwide escape yet, but we know it's a personal escape. So I think the big question now that I'm looking at, of course, is like, well, how, could, how can they actually, uh, what's the best way for them to enter this new system? And that, that's, that's getting into the details, of course. But like that's that's I think a big challenge right now is for people to think about. Like you got to know that the fees are going to get expensive on the main chain. Yeah. So so that we we have to think about well how are these people going to access, and you know what they're going to make trade offs in different ways, and it is what it is. But it is it is interesting to see, <laughs> like Binance say that it's going to adopt Lightning like 
like we saw the same thing in 2017, 2018. Like a lot of companies came on and said, fine, you know, we opposed SegWit before, but we're going to implement it now or whatever. We're going to, we're going to start our implementation, which could take a year or two for some of these big exchanges. But you saw like market realities force people to do something that they didn't want to do. And you're going to see that with Lightning or things like Lightning. You're going to see large, regulated, centralized custodians that don't give a shit about their customers. You're going to see them adopt (laughs) something that will save money for their customers and give them more privacy because it also benefits them. And that's the cool part about the Bitcoin incentive structure. So we're going to to see where this goes. And I hope that the people who need the Bitcoin the most, I hope we have ways of, of them getting on board. Um, anyway, Jeff, I thought that was Yeah, Alex, I, I just, it, it, the one thing I just want to touch on, and I think it's so important, Wyatt, when people say, my government's going to block my rails to, to this, or, or they control me, mm-hmm. it, effectively they're saying, uh, or, or we'll see when governments adopt this, effectively they're saying, I have no, I have no agency, I have no control. And in the, in, in this, Governments are the people. It doesn't matter what government is. If enough people move over to this system, that is the system. And every single person has a vote in the system in the world. It, it is, I keep saying there is no they. It's just we. And so, and, and that's really important to know how much control each person has in this system. Um, from a, because, because, what is happening in some of those authoritarian countries and in individual rights and freedoms being eroded? It's just a natural cause of, if you actually, Alex, you would know this better than I, but a lot of times what ends up happening is people are so economically challenged by what happened before that a new savior comes in and says, I'm going to fix it. And what, ends, and what ends up happening is they transfer their individual rights away to that new savior mm-hmm. who takes them and just prints money and consolidates that. And that's what happens all over the world. And if that, if that didn't happen, we wouldn't see it all over the world expanding. Um, so, so that's going to come to a, a neighborhood near you too. <laughs> in yeah, Alaska. look, if, if, historically, if you resisted the IMF World Bank type monetary system you you were the uh, uh, you, let's say you were a democratically elected leader of a place like the philippines which marcos was at the beginning more or less right okay yeah. so you you might um not want to give up sovereignty you might actually want independence for your people maybe maybe you are um on an honest good actor but it becomes quite difficult uh, and you, you really didn't have that many options back then i mean you either like essentially became like an anti-American socialist revolutionary type. Um, and then you had to, or you just allied with the U S. Um, but it like, if you didn't want to ally with like this big resource harvesting extraction thing, (laughs) um, you had two roads. You could either like posture like it and say in the media that you hated the IMF. And then, you know, when the cameras turned off, you would take the loans. That's what most of these dictators did. Um, they would rail against the IMF on in any speech that they gave, but then they would just borrow enormous amounts of money. Um, or you would actually try to resist the system, and in many cases, you know, maybe not directly, but you would get killed, overthrown, assassinated. Like, th- there is a long track record of that. Uh, less so in modern, sort of last 20 years, but, uh, I mean, there are a lot of examples of anti-kind of IMF leaders being... Uh, 
uh, being killed. Uh, yeah, so, but... so, so there were there were there were weren't very many appetizing ways forward for national leaders during that system. You know, during that system, right? You either had to really be you had to be a part of it, or or other options were really tough. Really tough. Yep. A lot of mysterious plane crashes for a lot of those leaders. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, just to give some context to what we're talking about here, uh, there was a BRC20, these tokens, um, mm-hmm. essentially driving up on-chain fees, um, causing yeah. a lot of demand for block space. And mm-hmm. at one point, even the transaction fees exceeded the block subsidy, uh, which was only happened a couple other times before. Um, and so what that happened, people were worried. They're like, is this going to prevent people from accessing Bitcoin in these developing countries who need it for cheap payments? Um, now that they have to pay higher transactions. So there's a little bit of debate online. Um, at, but really, I think what Alex said, that this is a free market, and that's actually pushing people towards L2s well, like Lightning. Yeah, let's let's give some data. So I just have it here. Like So over the yeah. last day, um, or let, let's say going back over the last 12 hours, if you want to get your transaction in the next block, it's uh, almost 600 sats per byte. So it's been it's about $35, okay? Uh, next hour was above 30. And even if you wanted the next 12 hours, it was like above five bucks. So, and, and, and in the last couple blocks has been rising up to, to $7. So, I mean, you're talking like if you actually want your Bitcoin to go through right away, you're talking 30, 35 bucks. Like, again, I, I agree. This is like a, 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 a sort of a moment. I think it'll chill out. I mean, it's what, what these people are doing is so expensive to, to, to sustain. Um, I, I highly doubt they can sustain it for more than a couple days. Um, but what you're seeing is people trying to, I mean, essentially, uh, you know, they're creating these, they're creating tons of these NFTs so much so that like you would, as a user of them, you would view them essentially as fungible and they're just like a new token class. That's, that's what's happening right now. And they're minting these things, these massive collections, and they have no reason to stop as long as they make money. So we'll have to just see how this goes, but like. If they can, if they expend thirty million and they can dump on retail for forty-five million, they're going to keep doing it. So again, I think it fades, but it could be a little bit of a, a moment here. But in any case, it's a glimpse of the future where we all know that on-chain is going to be prohibitive Expensive. for like small transactions. It might yeah. be something that like large corporations do to settle, that like nation states do to settle. It might be even something that that you know people and individuals or families do once in a great while for something that needs. You know, secure finality, etc. You might put your you might put your will on there, right? You might do that, or you might do like you might you might you might do a real estate transaction on on chain, for example. Transactions, Um, but like coffee or remittance or a small payment or a micro payment, and it's just not going to be. So um, the current infrastructure is just struggling there. Uh, Some wallets, like wallets, including ones that I've promoted before and that I like. Like the moon wallet is just it's not really yeah. working right now yeah. and that's because they use this kind of clever tactic to uh, they handled your lightning for you and then they settled you on chain and that's not mm. a viable thing to do when it's 35 dollars to, to get into yeah. the next block um, so, so so but but there are other wallets that are working just fine like phoenix and um we're gonna we're gonna this is gonna light a fire big time uh, just like uh the last bubble lit a big fire towards where we got to today where we are much more prepared. So every time one of these things happens, it's actually like it causes short-term pain, but it's like a long-term gift because it yeah. pushes us in the right direction. Anyway, Jeff, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I just see see this. If somebody's going to overpay for for block space for 
your meme coin or whatever. Yeah. That, that will clear itself out. That's just a market-facing function that's going to clear itself out. But over time, uh, there is going to be more stuff competing. And as long as they obey the consensus rules for a, a Bitcoin, then that's, that's a good thing. And what ends up happening is um, and those things that are more valuable will compete out all of this nonsense that people think is valuable. Do you have to go through yeah. these waves? Of course you do, because that's how any market re reacts. Mm -hmm. Do you try to con change the consensus rules because of that? No, you don't. What ends up happening is it pushes more uh, more to develop lightning and make sure lightning is is it, it works yeah. re, uh, really well and that innovation takes care of that on top of bitcoin and then it expands things like fediment and 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 and, and others and you have this layered approach where depending on what you want to move how you want to move it if i'm going to move a, a billion dollars um um to another country yeah um then then i don't mind paying 35 dollars. right exactly like it's nonsense it's <laughs> to, to even think that that's a that, that's a word um but if i'm going i'm not going to do all my transactions at 35 dollars of transactions that would be equally nonsense right um so 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 this is just how a layered approach in technology typically works and and we're, we're and people are people are so caught up in a moment of what this looks like and then and then some of the things oh i'm going to change the rules we need to stop this um the rules are the rules and and yeah. if people can abuse them the market a market will abuse them and then those people are going to get liquidated because it never made sense in the first place or they're going to pay a whole bunch of miners extra fees that's going to decentralize and secure the network even more so this just it'll clear it's just part of the yeah. ecosystem building and it expands the network well, it'll clear, but it might. We might have a high, you know a higher floor for fees, and then that that floor creeps up over time. Yeah, but it, but again, we, when we, when you think about what that floor is, even in the in the highest or what, it, if it's twenty, thirty five dollars, seventy dollars yeah. to move that type of transaction, mm -hmm. that, that I would determine in a free market that makes sense to move that, then that'll make sense. And then another, I I, I moved a dollar to my wife on Lightning last night. And it was seven sets, right? Right. Didn't yeah. I, the, so, so I can move, I can move a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, ten thousand dollars on the same thing, um, and it's. Uh, I just many people don't know yet. They were using the main chain because they didn't really, they weren't, didn't need to use lightning. Yeah, they didn't, the people, yeah. people building to lightning, were expecting low fees forever, so they hadn't built. The redundancy and what that fee market would look like and so that in the immediate short term it breaks things and then all of those entrepreneurs building the the the, the other technology go whoa okay here's how we're gonna here's how we're gonna do this so it doesn't break things yeah well there's also that model that uh jesse myers or Croesus uh, had a couple of years ago which i liked which was like the container ship like you have to remember like each of these bitcoin transactions is gonna potentially be a container ship that has like tons of other kinds of economic activity in it. Um, and, and that will provide pressure on yeah. block space. But yeah. in any event, for the purposes of our conversation, the reason I, I think is relevant to discuss this is because um, these people do finally have an escape from structural adjustment and from this like never ending debt trap. They can get out of it uh, over time. They and their families and communities and businesses through Bitcoin. It's, it's not a, a 
like yes it, it can help immediately in the sense of like opening up financial possibilities and moving money um but as far as wealth building and purchasing power appreciation that's a that's going to take yeah we're talking about years and decades but it is going to happen it's a trend we're moving in that direction so the question is like how accessible can we make this thing uh, and and you know uh i still think that this is going to chill out a little bit and we're still going to be for several years now in a world where it's totally reasonable for people to use on chain that people should learn how to do this to self custody. There is no second best. And then what's going to start to happen is you're going to start to realize that's going to be priced out for most people for most things. And then we're going to, they're going to have options. Some of them are going to prefer a community bank, like a federated mint. Some of them are going to prefer lightning. Some of them are going to prefer a side chain. Some of them are going to prefer a Bitcoin bank, like Hal Finney described where essentially it's just a Neo bank. I mean, there's going to be a lot of different things that people would prefer. Um, but the key is like, for us, I think as educators is to help people self custody on chain for as long as it's uh, economically feasible. It's so so important, and then that, then everything else goes from there. Like I really really don't think we're gonna see thirty five dollar fees all year here. Like I think it's gonna subside, and yeah. then we're gonna have another time when when we can continue to like build and promote. Like it is, on the one hand, like it's we're it's expected. Like we should we shouldn't we shouldn't be complaining because we we know better. Like this is gonna happen. But on the other hand, it does make it tough for people like our friend Anita, who's educating people in, in Zimbabwe. Like, it's what does she do? It's hard for her right now, okay? So, like, sending a transaction is prohibitive, basically, on the main chain. And opening a lightning channel, if you don't have it already, is prohibitive. So it forces people into custodial solutions. It is a big, uh, let's say, adoption dilemma. So the, the better tools we have, like, that can help people address this, uh, I sure. think that's absolutely worth investing our time and energy right now in. Yeah. yeah, and I feel like uh, I feel like what we are explaining is this model that Pierre Richard and uh, Joe Burnett came up with, which is the fee market kind of fly flywheel loop of high fees lead to scaling solutions, which leads to lower fees, which leads to increased use cases, which leads to high fees. And similar to what we saw in 2017 yeah. when the fee spiked, we got Segwit, and that led to Lightning. Yeah. And so right now we're seeing the same thing where okay. The fee spiked again, and we're going to see the, the market respond, entrepreneurs respond. We're going to see more solutions come out uh, within Lightning, but also with Fediment. And Jeff, like Fedi just raised $17 million in a Series A, and Ego Death Capital was the lead. Um, I think Fediment's really interesting. I was at MicroStrategy Conference, and I heard Obi talk. And maybe you could just explain what they're trying to build there, because it's like the first federated operating system. And I think it could maybe help some of these people who are trying to escape from structural adjustment programs in these countries that are suffering from currency devaluations in these developing countries. Uh, could possibly be another tool for them to use. So maybe you can go into that a little bit to finish up this conversation. Yeah, so first a nod to Alex, because Fetty might not exist in, in that form uh, if uh, if I didn't go to Human Rights Federation with them at Oslo Freedom Forum, and and, and so we were we were uh, with a group of at, uh, activists um, uh, all over the world, and and when you listen to their stories, it's hard not to cry. It's literally it's they're so touching, and you think, what if what if my kid was born into that? Like what does that what does that look like? What it, what are these people uh, born into? So. But the, a lot of those people didn't understand Bitcoin. And what we got to talking about a lot was if, 
if this is this hard, if self-custody is this hard and there's so much misunderstanding about what Bitcoin is and what that does, how are we going to get billions of people all over the world to, to use this in this, in this form? And that's where, that's where Fed, uh, uh, Fediment or Obi was already working on Fediment. Um, but how could we create something that could drive massive adoption of that uh, to people who, uh, who needed it most. Um, and so the, the idea was born out of, out of really that conference. Um, and Fetty was born out of that. And, and so I think the one thing is if you could self custody, you should still self custody. Um, but, uh, by creating, uh, Fetty, they created a, a technology, 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 technology solution to be able to um, essentially do federated self-custody in a in in a way that you would use that like your your my family could be my federation yeah um and and so my family is not three or five of them are probably not going to conspire against me to take my bitcoin and i operate as as i and and for my friends i operate as i hold one of their uh seed phrases in a lot of cases so this is actually just some uh, a better way or an easier way to scale that what i'll the, just can i just add yeah. jeff that like yeah. for from the ngo perspective like as fetty continues to do its work and as, as fediment as the open source community continues to iterate and even as you know different ways of doing something similar like uh cashew and others proliferate hopefully what you'll have is um a system where like ngos can set up their own bank uh cross jurisdictional uh cross border uh, where a handful of trusted people inside the organization uh, you know, are, are hold the keys to control uh, the bank essentially, um, and then the users get uh, privacy. They get global connectivity. They can pay any Lightning invoice in the world, uh, and they even get access to LSP, a network of Lightning service providers who are essentially merchants willing to do foreign exchange for them. So, for example, like you might you know deposit some funds with your NGO's uh, f- federation. And then you might be able to like pay out in Egyptian pounds um, through through an LSP who's willing to be local and handle that relationship. And you're going to pay a fee for that, but that's fine. You might be fine with that. So it's really interesting that like you might have like an Amnesty International Fediment type thing that Amnesty makes it's available for its members or whatever, where members, uh, it's opt-in. I mean, y- you trust Amnesty. You don't think that like the seven people who are the key holders are likely going to betray you because you believe in them. And then that would be a community of whatever, thousands or tens of thousands of people who deposit there and then get certain perks and services. And carry so, that for, yeah, carry that forward. And then yeah. say, say, I start there in a federation and I'm into this big federation and mm-hmm. now I have no fees on this stuff, that the, no, no, no channel, no, no people skimming off the top and right. everything else through this. I'm inside that federation. And then I said, decide, oh, I'm going to set up my my family one within that one so I, I set up a separate one and so um so you can see these things exploding and sam what you were talking about is how they're looking at this because of the fediment protocol you you literally have what what could look like apple uh or look uh, without a 30 percent fee structure you have a you have a federated operating system whereby 
they're trying to build an open source model where other people can develop tools to help all these federations and they don't need to get paid. So you create all of these other other different, they call them FETI modules, but they're just Fediment modules that can be put into whatever federation. Well, it's similar to what your iPhone would look like. Your iPhone is different than my iPhone, right? Because you, you've chosen different modules. Imagine that entire thing building, but not, no 30% fee to Apple on the way through. So really, 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 really powerful. Um, and you, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Fediment, Fediment, I've been geeking out on it, honestly. Um, it just seems like much bigger than what I had initially thought it was. Um, when I listen to Obi's talk, it's it's more of an entire operating system, like you were saying, and allows people to control their money, but also their data and all their digital lives while protecting their privacy and autonomy. And that's yeah. the goal. It's a big goal. It's a big I goal. I mean, it's, 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 it's not, uh, it's a compliment to self-custodying your Bitcoin right. and your long-term right. savings, but it's a compliment that could be far better than the existing uh, options. I mean, again, like you have, I mean, you're talking about competing with like, let's say like uh, self-custodial, rather custodial lightning wallets. Um, and these if properly designed and implemented are way better. I mean, it gives you local control and it gives you way more optionality. And, you know, your rug, you're getting rugged uh, percentages is like way lower than some company in some other country where you don't know them at all. I mean, and then they could just get they could right. get taken down or whatever. If you set up a community thing with people that you know, um, it is just so much so much safer from that perspective. So I think this taps into a whole different perspective that a lot of people in the West don't have, which is community banking, which is taking advantage of the trust. I know it sounds weird and counterintuitive because aren't we supposed to be trustless here? Um, but I, I think you, you have these two kinds of money in the future. You have your like self-custodied Bitcoin where you don't trust anyone, you verify. But then you also may choose to um, uh, add functionality to your spending ability and make it more private or go through different kinds of currency regimes, etc. by trusting people that you know. Um, and then yeah. there's all kinds of cool stuff like social recovery and all kinds of other cool things that that, that can be done there. Um, but I'm very bullish on it as as a solution for people who are a stuck under these horrible currency regimes, you know, in many, in many ways exacerbated by this IMF world bank system and B stuck with the rising, just brutal reality that, that transaction fees will get expensive in Bitcoin on chain. So this is something that I think is a key piece of the puzzle here. Yeah. Just another tool. And I see it as there's going to be a spectrum of custody solutions out there from self-custody, uh, collaborative custody. Um, and then there's the third party custody. Um, so it's kind of a whole spectrum that people are going to use. And I think it, the more that we build, the more tools that we pro- can provide these people that are in these jurisdictions, um, the better. So we're out of time, guys. Uh, I, this was a great conversation. Um, really enjoyed it. Uh, if there's any final thoughts you have or just like maybe where people can find you, Alex, if you want to point them towards your book. Um, I really enjoyed it. So uh, any final comments? Thank you. Uh, yeah, just Hidden Repression, again, forward by Jeff here, uh, available on Bitcoin Magazine. If you want to support them or, or buy in Bitcoin, you can do that. Uh, if you want to get on Amazon, it's there as well. Leave a review if you can. I will be giving a talk about the topic uh, at the Bitcoin conference in about 10 days. Uh, it's going to be a keynote on the 19th around 4 p.m. Nice. Um, on the big stage, which should be really fun. 
and I'm also doing a couple book signings down there. So I hope to see some of you uh, down in in Miami. Me, I'm just uh, nothing to say uh, except for looking forward to seeing everybody in <laughs> Miami. <laughs> yeah, me too. Excited to see you guys. Oh, oh and I want to show. Uh, well, I have the, the Oslo Freedom Forum is coming up in June, June 13 to 15. Uh, it'll it's a phenomenal experience, as Jeff mentioned. It's a place where you can come together with some like-minded people. Most of them haven't taken the orange pill yet, but the, a lot of them are ready for it or 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 think similarly in terms of challenging the existing system. And they have a lot of cool stuff they're working on. And we, we're going to have a full day of financial freedom programming there on the 15th, which I think is going to be really stellar. So uh, we'll be live streaming it also, but I would definitely encourage people to go in and and um, uh, and, and check that out, oslofreedomforum.com. But again, thanks, Sam and, and Swan, uh, for having us. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, these are important topics to me. And uh, you guys can follow these guys on Twitter. I'm sure you can find them easily. Just Google their names. They're on there. They're always sharing their insights. So check them out. And thanks for coming on the show, guys. You guys have a wonderful day. And I'll see you both in Miami. Thanks, Sam. See you soon, Sam. If you care about your financial future, you need to check out a couple of our offerings, including Swan IRA and Swan Private. Swan Private is our white glove concierge service where you get a trusted partner on your Bitcoin journey. We offer all kinds of education and research projects as well as exclusive events to our Swan Private customers. Check it out today at swan.com private. Also, Swan IRA. Swan IRA is the best way to gain exposure to real Bitcoin in a tax advantage account, like a traditional IRA, a Roth IRA, or rolling over your 401k. So if that interests you, check it out at swan.com slash IRA today.